Hey everyone, I'm Paige Smith and you're listening to a special live event recording on Below the Radar. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Please enjoy the following recording from A Conversation About Urban Choreography with Alana Garricky, Justine A. Chambers, and Annabelle Vaughn. Together, the panelists explore the accumulation of living archival gestures generated by the interactions between moving bodies and built space, an evolving assembly of lost gestures. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to Conversation About Urban Choreography. Uh, We're really excited to have uh, these panelists with us today. We've got Alana Garricky, Annabelle Vaughn, and Justine A. Chambers, and I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, I just wanted to do a few housekeeping notes. Uh, we are on the lands of the, the stolen lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. That's where we are today. And uh, uh, we do have uh, all gender washrooms on this floor. If you go back down the hall towards the elevators, uh, and we are going to be recording this session tonight. Uh, and there will be a conversation piece to it after. Uh, so without any further notes, I will pass it over to Alana. Thank you so much. And thank you everybody for coming tonight. This is like, I'm giddy to see bodies in a room together and not just screen heads. It's such a treat. Um, so we're here today Uh, having a conversation about urban choreography. And we're thinking of this as really just a conversation that is open to folks who want to be in the room and maybe contribute towards the end when we open it up or throughout if something is burning. So that's that's our expectation and that's what we're we're coming here with. Um, So I'll introduce myself. My name is Alana Garricky and I am a scholar and an artist and a mother and an uninvited guest on the stolen lands of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, where I've been working for the last two decades. Um, I hold a PhD, which is technically in English, but really in performance studies, where I looked at site-based dance and urban spatial politics with Peter Dickinson, uh, and went from there to do a postdoctoral fellowship, a Banting fellowship under Laura Levin, looking at kind of expanding the idea of site-based dance and looking at colloquial versions of choreography in public space, so like protest, that sort of thing. And right now I've got, I'm working with um, a Shadbolt Fellowship uh, in the Urban Studies uh, Department at SFU and also a um, artist in residence at the Dance Center. So kind of straddling those two worlds and thinking about movement and choreography in public space. Thanks, Elena. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name is Justine A. Chambers. Uh, actually, I never say the A out loud, so that just felt really strange in my mouth. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm a dancer and a choreographer, uh, art maker. Um, I'm also started working here at the SCA in September as a term lecturer, so I'm also an educator. My practice Uh, lives in many places. I make work for the stage and make work for the city and for the gallery and to read, but I really hold the body, my body, as the center of the work, not the body, my body at the center of the work that I do. Uh, I really like to think about how choreography can be empathic practice 
And I'm thinking uh, with Alana a lot just about uh, the movement of our bodies through the city. I'm thinking about state choreographies. I'm also mostly just concerned with how our bodies are already moving together in public space and private space. Uh, and really like to think about, spend a lot of time sort of pondering what the accumulated archive is of any particular body um, and like to think about dance and choreography as a place to hold that archive instead of books or records that hold a singular perspective. So I really like to think about the multiple and multiple forms of archival practices that are embodied. And yeah, I think that's probably enough about me right now. Thank you. And I'm Annabelle Vaughn. I am an architect and uh, just recently came back to the West Coast. I grew up in Toronto, spent half my life there and then came out here and spent another half of my life out here and then went back to Toronto and am happily back on the West Coast. Decided to move during the pandemic, which was interesting. <laughs> And uh, it's delightful to be in an audience. It's kind of trippy. I want to give thanks to the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Sloetooth, sorry, Sloetooth, who continue to put up with, continue to put up with us as we learn how to be guests in their territories. I'm grateful for their patience and continue to strive to shift my own frame of reference, take responsibility for the crimes of my people who came before and dismantle and decolonize the structures I come into contact with. It's an ongoing piece of work and it's something I'm committed to. My practice is kind of a strange one. I'm a reluctant architect, uh, but I engage with it. But I'm really interested in the edge condition and that, and very conscious of the fact that buildings create the public realm and that the intersection between the public and the edge of a building is a really fascinating liminal space that is charged and has so much potential. I write, I teach, I curate, I design, I think, I play, I do all sorts of things in the city, but mostly I'm really interested in the sort of spatial prax praxis of the city. And um, was invited by Justine and Alana, and I'm entering into a conversation that I am very curious about. <laughs> um, so a bit of backstory on kind of what, where this comes from. Uh, Justine and I each have our own trajectories, which we've just kind of gestured towards in terms of thinking through movement and bodies and public space, et cetera. Um, and that kind of started to dovetail in 2016 with a talk actually here. So this is like ABA. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we, from there, kind of kept, we were just really curious about um, how our overlapping but different skill sets uh, could kind of feed the question and the exploration around um, moving through public spaces and how uh, how choreographies are inbuilt in urban design, how we're invited to walk in certain directions, face certain um, orientations, which then brings us into relation differently with different buildings and people, et cetera. So it was really exciting. We've looked at this in a few ways, kind of straddling um, dance practice, social practice, writing practice. Um, and we've had a little pet project 
that was seeded for me as I was reading through um, Migration of a Gesture. Carrie Noland and Sally Ann Ness write a beautiful book that explores gesture. And in it, they quote um, Theodore Adorno, who, who laments the loss uh, that technology brings in terms of our gestural voc vocabulary. So he's talking about um, the advancement of like door hinges, for example. So moving to like a refrigerator door that you have to slam with force or a car door that you have to slam with force. And he's lamenting the loss of the nuance of engaging with like an intricate system and kind of that negotiation and hesitation that takes place if you're like turning a window latch rather than slamming a window shut. Um, and so that just kind of seeded a little pet project that, that I really wanted to explore around like what, do, to just to pick up on that inquiry, what does it mean for this subject, for our bodies, that we let go of um, a series of gestures that are no longer required or elicited in everyday life? And is there something there, like if you believe that the way that we move through the world really shapes our engagement with the things and bodies around us, um, then might there be a site of inquiry there in terms of gestures that we no longer use that have been phased out of, of vocabulary or um, thinking less temporally and more spatially gestures that, that kind of belong to one specific location and not to another, et cetera. So how, how, does, that, how does gesture migrate across bodies? Because that's precisely what it does. How do objects invite different gestures? Um, and what information is contained in those gestures. So with that, we developed a project that we're calling Lost Gestures. Um, and we're, at this point, it's like a, a year of research. So we're thinking about how to explore the embodied archive, uh, to pick up on, on Justine's idea there, how to explore different bodies, different knowledge holders, um, and different gestures that we might not recognize as lost, that we might just um, not see or feel anymore. So we're, we're thinking about methodology still, but we, we do um, have a plan to engage with a series of knowledge holders just to think through those lost gestures and um, a range of knowledge holders, including Annabelle and people with expertise in design, designing those uh, everyday urban objects that we're so curious about. So, yeah, and I think it's important uh, to talk, I mean, just to take a second to I'm gonna loop back for just a second that the archival process, I think, for like what's gotten lost sort of resides with the object, you know, oh, when we go uh, in my mind, how I understand it is that it's like, oh, doorknobs are, there's this kind of doorknob and this kind of doorknob and this, and then the way it gets what gets cataloged is the object that creates the gesture. And I think we're really interested in, in making, like prioritizing the gesture that gets lost versus the object. And then also thinking about, um, you know, knowing that, that the grip is like this because of the object, but like what's the force of the grip. So we're also like looking at the force of action, um, which I think is sort of maybe a little bit more the Aaron Manning thing about. Mm -hmm. A minor gesture, right? Like what's the force of the gesture instead of the gesture itself? And so that we're trying to archive action. Um, but, and all of those things. Um, Annabelle, I don't even know when I met you, Annabelle. It was a long time ago. It was long enough ago that yeah. 
you just circle in my mind. And <laughs> when, um, when Alana and I were thinking about this project, we thought, oh, you know, to really do a fulsome approach, to really give the right attention, we actually need to bring people in who can deal <laughs> with the objects and or the buildings, because the gestures wouldn't only just be with opening and closing window, but how we approach a building, right, uh, is also a gesture. So we just really felt it was important to bring people who have an expertise that we don't. And Annabelle, for me in particular, felt like the right, a right person, uh, or someone, basically I've been curious about Annabelle for a really, really long time, and I use art projects to hang out with people I want to spend time with. <laughs> That's really me being maybe too real and honest, but it's true. Um, but I feel like Annabelle really thinks about the social implications of the built space, which for me really is in line with choreography as empathic practice. And not only that, but also the sociality of a space, how that affects what gets built or what gets broken, you know, what gets shut down. So that felt like, and, and also we were lucky enough to go for a walk with Annabelle last, was that just last week? Yeah. That was just last week. Last so much week? has happened in yeah, a week. Yeah, right? Yeah, last Monday. Holy smokes. Yeah. And, and the walk is a, a walk through Carroll, from Carroll Street, sort of from shore to shore, from Crab Park over here. And so it's something, all oh, there's something about Annabelle's interest in this particular space, this particular area where a lot of our working has happened, our thinking together, our meeting. I live in this neighborhood. I live three blocks away. I work here. So there's something also about locating the research here and that research that Annabelle, like this really incredible, full, <laughs> considered, um, sometimes even funny, the way you present your research, like it's just, there's a storytelling attached to it that I just feel like it's a really necessary, if you're going to be here in this particular area of the city, there's an obligation to understand what has happened here. And it just felt like the right fit. You know, um, also, uh, I believe in intuition as a science. <laughs> so I think that has a lot to do with why uh, Annabelle felt like a, a great person to bring in. And I've always wanted to, to pick their brain a little bit more. But yeah, it's really for me about the social implications or the sociality of a space, which felt like she could speak to the research that I'm interested in and the research that Alan and I are interested in together and the research that Alan is on about on her own. Um, so yeah, and what I'd like to do is invite you, Annabelle, to take us on a little trip. Okay. For your slides and thoughts. <laughs> okay, so I didn't follow the format. I missed the email. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, took this on a, I'm gonna take this on a, on a trip. I'm gonna take us on a trip. But I was thinking about gesture and in relation to buildings, and it's a really hard thing to think about. And uh, it elicited a really great conversation with my child who is not a child anymore, but is a man in the world who rock climbs. And we've had this great conversation, but I came across this great definition while I was looking around at things from the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. The word is Zeno. It's kind of a, I don't know if you've ever stumbled across it, but it's kind of a, um, like an urban dictionary, but more poetic. Zeno, the smallest measurable unit of human connection, typically exchanged between passing strangers, a flirtatious glance, a sympathetic nod, a shared laugh about some odd coincidence, 
moments that are fleeting and random but still contain powerful emotional nutrients that can alleviate the symptoms of feeling alone, which to me really resonated as we're coming out of the pandemic and we're beginning to sort of be in relation with each other again, which is really, you know, like we've all got the six feet apart dance. Well, some of us do, some of us don't still, but you know, now we have these other moments, but what I thought I would do is just um, show you a few slides that basically, oops, um, are things that to me kind of embody gesture in the built form or the city and I think are things that I think about within this context of this conversation that I've been asked to enter into. So this is the BC Electric Rail Building. This is the, a building that is at Carroll uh, and Hastings. It's on the, uh, I'm always gonna, I'm gonna get this wrong, the southwest west corner. This is from 1912. And this is a building I have spent a lot of time with. I did my thesis on it and was fascinated by this building. It used to house the um, streetcars. The streetcars went through the building, as you can see on the bottom of it and the train went beside it. There's a gap that you can just see at the edge of the photo. And um, I love the way that buildings um, have these traces of use and that there's this forensic architecture that needs to happen to unpack their histories. But there is this thing that happens to these buildings. Um, this is the building today. It's got light form in it. It's right across from Pigeon Park. And you can see how closed the building is and the fact that this, like it just shuts itself down. It turns its back on the city. And what is a really civic and incredible space, like building, like streetcars used to go through the bottom of this building. So when you're in this space, it actually exists at the scale of the city, which is a really beautiful thing. Walking into a building that exists and you walk into an atrium space that exists at the scale of the city, your body does a different thing than if you walk into the stairwell of a parkade or you walk into a hallway. And I, I think about that experience of the sort of the way in which the body crosses that threshold. But there's a really interesting thing about Hastings Street because it's closed itself down. And there are millions, well, millions, hundreds of examples up and down Hastings Street. Um, here they are side by side. You can see the different read of the two buildings. Um, this is, I tried to find another photo, but this is the only one I could find. This is a Fred Herzog photo of Hastings in Columbia. And it's, um, oh, sorry, I don't have the date of this one. It must be, it's in the 50s sometime. This is it today. Do you mind going back? Oh, yeah, good. And there they are side by side. And the thing that is so beautiful about the image on that side <laughs> is, um, is the depth that uh, the street enters into the building because of the openness. You, you can walk, like you can see in, visually see in. There are all these hotels along Hastings that used to have a similar lobby space, and the street would there was this sort of edge condition that, that moved into the building that was quite beautiful. And I like those traces. It, they're gone now, right? The neighborhood has put on armor and sort of turns its, its back to the street for a whole host of reasons. 
This is another thing that I love is, and this is another Fred Herzog photo. It's in, it's called Chinatown Stoop. The boy perched on the granite edge of the building, the granite foundation that is holding up the building, um, that is outsized and creates this little lip that we perch on. And these, these moments of perching against the edge of a building happen all over the place and they're quite beautiful. And then as I apologize for these stock photos and oh my God, it was the hardest thing finding a picture of people looking at a map, not looking dorky. But these are also moments that I find are related to a public life or a public gesture, looking at a map placing your body in space to orient yourself, which we don't often do anymore. And then the other one, which I think is the, the, the smallest of gestures is a curb and the, the sort of civic, um, uh, movement that is embedded in the curb. Like we all stop and look left and right and then left again and step off. And so the introduction of a curb just is this very, you know, it, 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 there's a cadence to it that's quite beautiful. And in fact, my whole thesis was around re-implementing the curb out on the train tracks that went beside the building, which was a really radical thing to do. And it was like, that's what my thesis ended up being about was stepping off a curb, which was quite funny. Um, and then I began thinking about it in relation to architecture and what a gesture might look like in a building. And this building is one of my favorite buildings in the city. It's at the corner of Hastings, uh, sorry, Carroll and Kiefer, Pender. Kiefer or Pender? The one... It's Penders, yeah. And it's the Peking Chop Suey House. It still looks like this. And the beauty of it is that the side that has the Peking Chop Suey House sign on it is uh, dressed like a Gastown building. It looks like Gastown and the, um, the elevation that's on faces onto Pender is dressed like a Chinatown building and has the typology of Chinatown buildings with the recess, recessed um, balconies that overlook the street. And so this building holds its corner presenting itself in two faces, which I just find fascinating and a really beautiful architectural expression. And this is another thing that I, I love about this city because it is such an odd thing. This is um, basically the area we're sitting in. This, and there are three city grids in Vancouver that collide into each other. And um, the, the, pink, the pink building is the BC Electric Rail building, the one that we just looked at with the streetcars going into it. The dock is water the water is water street obviously like and then the green line is um is uh comes from an old logging road a skid road that was put in by um 
the there was a group of three guys who owned the um, claimed the West End, and they put in this road because it was the most direct point from A to B, and they could start logging their land. And so it has no, it's just what three guys did. And the blue line is the original town site of Granville, which later becomes the city of Vancouver. And this is a cadastral line. This is an actual surveying line that is true north. So if you continue on that blue line, in the direction it's going, you will eventually hit the North Pole. The pink line is um, magnetic north, which is a compass, right? And a compass, a compass and true north are not aligned. And there's this great, there's a bunch of websites that you can go to, and you can go back to 1911 and find out how far off the grids were. And in Vancouver, it's between 11 and 12, 11 and 12 degrees that it has moved, right? So in 1911, the grid uh, magnetic north was 25 degrees east of north. Today, it's nine degrees east of north, and that's because the, the earth moves, right? And the pink line was put in by a Roman Catholic priest who owned a couple of lots on the other side of, of Carroll Street, which is such a beautiful trace of the body on the city. And what is what was an amazing discovery for me is that all three grids show up structurally in the BC Electric Rail Building. There's three grids, and the city is sort of... It became, it, for me, it's the belly button of Vancouver. <laughs> and then the other thing is, is this, which is, the, this is an architectural sort of strange thing where we begin to imprint our body into space. And almost any architect you talk to will have measurement imprinted on their body. I know, for instance, that... If I go up to something and stretch my thumb to my finger, that's eight inches. I can walk a three-foot step to measure a space. I know that when my hand is down by my side that it's 30 inches from the ground. <laughs> so all of these things are, you know, and this is um, Le Corbusier's Modular Man. And this was his idyllic that he put together. Uh, you know, the ideal man. It's really fascinating because the ideal man in Le Corbusier's mind was 1,829 millimeters, six feet tall. I will point out that Corbusier was five foot eight. He was short. So I just, I love this because it's such a bizarre thing. But of course, what ends up happening is that this becomes the measurement. And so this idealized body becomes the benchmark for a chair, for a seat, for a table, for where your arms go. And it's this, you know, it's, it's what Corbusier pined for. It really has no basis. But a lot of people used it for many years. Now people use this one. This is um, graphic standards. This is what most architects grow up with. Um, originally done in 1974, Alvin Tilly and Henry Dreyfus. And the incredible thing about this is that for the longest time, there was no woman in the manual. And then they 
put a woman in. But the man is, I don't know if you can see, if you can see up by his head. Well, it's really hard to see, but there's three numbers by each, in each category. And the three numbers are short, tall, medium, and the mean. And so the mean of this one is um, uh, 100 and, that's oh, sorry, it's not on here, uh, is uh, 1,000, 1.77, millimeters, I think, which is five foot 10. And that piece of information, so, Henry Dreyfus, who did this, he, one of the first projects that he did, he was an industrial designer, was he designed tanks for the US Army during World War II, and he used human factors, factor data to determine design elements, like the size of the tanks, where the foot pedals should be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The project gave Dreyfus a wealth of data that would prove useful because the, the Army meticulously documented everything about the man it drafted. So this 1.772 millimeters is the average U.S. military marine male in world, uh, in like 1940, 35 or 30, you know, between 35 and 42 or whatever it is. And this has been the graphic standard that drives everything. It's where door handle heights come from. It's where table heights come from. And it's, I find that really fascinating and quite beautiful as a trace. The female got introduced, I think, um, sometime in the 80s, I believe. And it is a military norm as well. Right. But this, this drives everything, which I find fascinating. So I just wanted to put that out there because I think that in terms of sort of thinking about gesture in the built form and the sort of reductiveness of where things are. And I think we've all had the experience of walking on a set of stairs that aren't calibrated properly and how difficult that is. And there are so many things that we come across in, in a day to day that, you know, we don't notice, but we only notice when they're not, when it's different, right? A door handle that isn't where you're expecting it right? Steps that are hard to navigate. Um, you know, why you trip over the smallest of, of, uh, you know, unevenness in a, in a sidewalk, those types of things. Anyway, so that's what I've been thinking about in relation to the conversation. And just because I'm an architect, I just like to see things. So that's why I put slides together. Yeah. Thank you so much. There's a lot there. Do you want me to put it on something nicer than that? I like that one. You like that one? Yeah. Okay. That's so much information. <laughs> Isn't there's it? A, there's a really sick book that you can get. I might find out about that. Yeah. Um, I think that that your comment around when design fails is when we, when we notice. I think that's something that's um, really, I find personally interesting um, because it speaks to me, I think, about like, the practice that I've been cultivating for a couple of, well, for almost a decade now, I guess, as I move through my PhD of like trying to really actually observe uh, the choreography that my body undergoes on the daily, like not just move through it because it's become 
is so automatic, right? That it's easy to just kind of move. But if you actually take that sort of choreographic perspective and start to look at um, the choices you're making and the score that you're making those choices within, that is the urban design, um, then it, it feels really um, rich to me and, and, of, and ripples out to all sorts of um, kind of questions of relation that I think would be interesting to circle back to. But, but one of the things that I guess I noticed is that it's really easy to not notice. It's really like it, it feels like the city is designed uh, like those smooth pathways, which are designed for so many good reasons. And there's a whole conversation when we think about the curb around like the ableist inscription into the city, um, like who has access, who can move through, et cetera. So there are good reasons for smoothing walks. I'm, I'm not trying to claim otherwise, but it does make it easy at times for you to not notice yourself traversing along a street, right? Which would be different if you're say, um, moving on uneven ground, uh, or if you're climbing over branches, logs, etc., uh, then you're kind of forced into this kinesthetic experience of noticing yourself navigate. Um, and when, when, the, when the path is clear and you know that it's going to be clear, um, it's easier to check out and check your phone or whatever and not actually be dropped into the choreography that you're enacting um, until those moments when you trip on a curb uh, or when, or when yeah, or when just as you were talking about uh, the design, yeah, the standard <laughs> design dimensions. So like my daily, ex I'm not a very short woman, like I'm 5'4", I'm okay, you know, but I just can't sit in a chair, bus, school or otherwise without having my feet dangle. So I feel like I'm like constantly reminded about who the space is built for and who's expected to be here, whether or not that's like um, any conscious decision, that's the physical experience, right? I, I come up against that when I notice that I don't have a place to rest my feet. So I think that's really interesting around the, the kind of the, almost the kinesthetic possibility that opens up when design fails or when, or when something's not smooth, when there's, when there's a crack. Yeah, and I think, you know, the pandemic has actually highlighted this in a really visceral way for everybody because the six feet, you know, I mean, I don't know how many times you had this happen to you, but I showed up in a line, you know, and a woman went, look, I'm six feet away from you. And it was like, that's not six feet. Yeah. No, <laughs> both your arms might be six feet. Yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, the sort of lack of spatial awareness and, and then, the navigation that went on, right? I'm sure a lot of you saw the, there was a video going around of um, the urban geographer in, in Toronto, Daniel Rothstein. He, he put a six foot diameter hula hoop around his body and walked through to the Toronto streets trying to show how public space was so, you know, uh, unable to absorb this new reality. And it was, it was funny, but there were other moments for me that were really poignant. There was one, one of the very first days of the pandemic, um, you know, when every, like we were all inside and washing everything that came into our house and really sort of freaked out and scared. And I had to go to the office. So I walked across the city. I went to the office. I picked something up. I came back. I walked across Young. I, our office is near Young and Bloor, which is very busy in Toronto. And, um, 
of course there was no there were no cars i was walking in the middle of the street which was just fun and uh there's a shelter that deals with um homeless folks in the neighborhood and i got to young street and there was a guy clearly in his own headspace you know walking down the street sweeping the road and it was just this moment of like I, I stopped. I, it startled me because I was just like, wow, you know, these people who normally live in the shadows and the margins and the thresholds, you know, all of a sudden their, their world, their, 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 this, their sense of space just expanded. And for some of them, I bet it was quite trippy. They were just like, where is everybody? Like what went down? You know, and, and so to sort of witness that was a really beautiful sort of, but that, that ebb and flow, that expansion and contraction of space is a really beautiful thing as well. And, you know, I think about, I think a lot about that, about the edge condition. Yeah, I think it's like, so, you know, I, when I think about dance and where I think about choreography and how I interact with it and how you're speaking about it, how you're both speaking about it is like it becomes an awareness practice, right? I think about dancing as an awareness practice very much. Um, and then in this moment, we get when we're talking about smooth or jagged and access and these kinds of things, what starts to come up for me is like, who has the privilege of not being an awareness, like to, to mm. who has the privilege to not notice you know, but because of the way I'm able to move through the world, I don't, I, I know I can take some steps forward and it's not going to be perilous for me, but there are people who that's definitely perilous for. So who gets the privilege of not, of not noticing? Um, and probably the majority, a majority. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm like constantly brought into this moment where, you know, if, if I, you know, sometimes the curb comes up a little higher than you, like the, the world meets you sooner than your foot goes down, right? And that for me, that's just like, a, uh, you know, oh, my back or, you know, mm. middle age, uh, you know, but for somebody else that can completely um, turn their world upside down for a period of time. And then, so going back to empathic practice, it's like, what is it to make those considerations as you move through the world and and how do we make this, you know, my thing is always like, how do we make this an awareness practice for everyone? Because we consider how, how we behave in those spots quite differently, right? Like, how would I, how would I see it or take space um, if I had to notice everything all of the time, right? And I notice as much as I can inside of my able body that has very few restrictions. Um, so it always sort of brings me to this sort of moment where I say, okay, this is clumsy for me. Whose world is broken because of that? Or, you know, you know, expecting a door to open outward and then it doesn't. And then you, you know, <laughs> but for somebody that could mean they can't go somewhere and they could already be halfway there. So this is like, these are the types of things that I, I really like to hold on to and try and capture for my, for myself. And this military norm thing, like this is, I mean, yeah, my heels also don't touch the floor here. My toes touch, but my heels don't touch. And before we came here, we were talking about, I was talking about my dad had a car when I was, I don't know, three or four. And for the longest time, my heels went to the edge of the back seat. And then one day they started to start folding over. And that's how I determined that I was growing up. I was now an adult because my... <laughs> <laughs> because I was no longer like so little, um, and I and I, I just like to notice those things 
you know, all the time, but this military norm, I was listening to something after you mentioned it, I found the last time we met, I found this podcast that was talking about fighter planes mm. and how the fighter planes, which is one of the most frightening places I think to be in, in a, in a war, because if you get trapped in or you get trapped out, both are good. Well, I mean, both are bad. You don't, there's no winning there, but that the seats were made for this norm or the six foot norm, the first norm you talked about that they created and, and how um, people that were larger were unable to get out of the plane with their mm. parachute, parachutes because the passageways. And then if you sort of extend those passageways to the city, you know, who can't get out when and more scarily, who can't ever get in? Something that really shows up for me. Mm -hmm. Graphic standard, the graphic standard. Yeah, the, bi the Bible. The Bible. Yeah. I'd be curious about what the female measurements are. Uh, yeah. I, sorry, I don't know if you can read them up there. Probably I not. Can't. I can probably look on my phone. It's okay. I'll it's, follow up with it's, I The other thing that I think is really beautiful about this document is, you know, just the layering of information, like this notion that your body, you know, exists in this multitude of space. And that in this sort of bizarre non-precision by put, giving three numbers to everything, mm -hmm. you know, like, like you're vibrating in space, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, which I th find quite funny. But I was thinking when you were talking about the stairs, that, that piece of Bruce Nauman's, I mean, I know we're all tired of talking about him, but he does have that beautiful staircase he built on his property. And some of you have probably heard me speak about it before, but where every rise and run was different. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And for me, I thought, oh, that, <clears throat> he made some good choreography there, right? Because what happens when your body can't fall into rhythm, that it creates all this unusual erratic movement from the foot up because mm -hmm. you're, oh, okay, I'll take three steps across this rise but then or the, the run but then the rise is this high so that's and then the next so there's just people's bodies doing this like trying to feel because we need rhythm we need we need rhythm to move i mean in the same way that folks with parkinson's they say dance and then you'll have a, a different kind of access to your body because we fall into rhythm so just also how rhythm interrupting rhythm in our bodies creates you know um erratic movement which also is not received by the city well most times yeah, yeah. that makes me think of um william forsyth contemporary dancer choreographer extraordinaire has like in the i don't know a decade ago or so um, a lot of his practice shifted towards creating installations so you'd go in and engage with these choreographic objects so the the dance wasn't you know, bodies in a space moving in a way for you to witness. It was you going into a room full of like thousands of helium balloons and like playing with them. Um, and I think it's that idea of the of a choreographic object that I mm. that I'm interested in um, transplanting. Like I've got a book project on the go too that I'm I'm really interested in looking at that in terms of urban design and in terms of like architectural choices and how 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 the built world functions as this series of choreographic objects that that isn't just moving us through a set of um, pathways and rhythms, but is doing so in service of um, a certain order and organization of bodies that in turn serves uh, like a value and underpinning set of values and economies and and stuff um, that I that I think is 
that I think is really interesting. And when you talk about that, like mm -hmm. if you just imagine, like ima imagine moving down that staircase and if you can imagine the resonance in your body and then imagine transplanting that onto a sidewalk street, uh, it just feels like there's a lot of information in that transfer about what sort of movement is acceptable um, and permissed in urban spaces, just from kind of running through that exercise mentally. Well, it makes me think of two things. One is if you go to the Carnegie Center and walk up the spiral staircase, it's a beautiful marble staircase, the marble rise, and they're so worn that depending on where you walk in the stair tread, your gait gets thrown. Mm. Like they have dips in them from being walked on so much. It's a really beautiful staircase in the city. And then the other thing that it made me think about was that, you know, the there's also a mundaneness in this graphic standard, right? Because the the fact that you forget where a door pull is is exactly the result of the like it's a reductive thing to to do this. And so there's a banality to it that enters into crappy architecture. <laughs> and there is so much crappy architecture that we just, it becomes white noise, right? Like we just don't even notice it. We don't pay attention. And then there are moments in buildings that are so incredibly beautiful because of the way in which they've been rendered and that, that makes you stop. Like, Alvar Alto has a door handle on the Mount Angel Library down in Portland. If you ever get a chance to, it's in upstate Washington. It's outside of Portland. And it is a door handle, a brass door handle that I almost cried when I held on to hmm. it. Like it, it was so beautiful. It just stopped me in my tracks and it was heavy and felt good. And it was like, I'm opening something, you know, like, it, and it was, I'm not. And the other one is, um, Carlos Scarpa in the, um, I'm going to forget, Castle de Vecchio Museum. It's a, a castle that has been renovated into a museum and you go in one door and you follow a path through this museum and the path is very prescribed. And if you stray off it, I went one day with my, my, my partner and my kid who was six at the time. And then I went back the next day and I wanted to see something again. And you know how you go to Ikea and you, oh, you, you like, you know, have your, navigate your way through it. So I, I went off path and a security guard said, no, no, no. And mm. broke you know, like in gesturing in Italian. And he's like, get back on the path. Like you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to go. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But the thing that is so beautiful in this building is that all of the openings are are cut into the walls and different sizes and different. But at each opening, there is an inlay of brass at the head of the door. And so it's this really subtle cue of threshold that is just so rendered so beautifully. And... Uh, so things like that are, to me, uh, lift this notion of body and mm -hmm. embodiment in a building off the page, right? These things that you, you know, and some of them, you know, I think, are, you know, architects are OCD and man, we're not nice to live with. <laughs> somebody, somebody made a, a great slogan up at UBC every year. There's a, you know, 
a studio slogan and one of them was that architects are assholes and it's <laughs> everywhere now. Like you can buy stickers <laughs> and there, and, you know, I, I, I have to confess. <laughs> I love the thing you're saying about the, um, about the door handle. Cause another architect I was speaking to, um, we met through our kids and actually the way we met was kind of wonderful. I mean, we met because our kids were playing at the park. We have a mutual kid, mother situation. And we started talking and said, oh, it's nice to meet you. And I don't know. I asked, oh, I asked her, you know, well, what are you up to these days? I hate to say people like, what do you do? But I was like, what are you up to? She's like, oh, I'm an architect. And she's like, but do you know what? I had not told her what I do. What I really wanted to be was a dancer. And I was like, you and me, we got to talk. Because maybe I wanted to be an architect without all the work. I don't know, something like that. But she said to me, and I explained how I was working on this project. And she said to me, oh, um, a door handle to the front of a building is its handshake with you, and it makes and it, it makes an agreement with you. And I feel like that that door of that that's that building really made an agreement with you, and actually, like mm. it, it endeared you to it. And I love thinking about that, you know. And I mean, I'm I'm not even just the way certain objects, right? Like there's a, there's a window in my house that I don't like what I have to do with my body to open it. So I don't open it. Hmm. Like it feels bad to open it. So I just don't open it. Somebody wants it open. Somebody else has to open it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> it's just, and, and then I'm thinking about this imprinting, um, how we, you wrote, we begin to imprint our bodies into space, like with all the measurements, but then also how space imprints itself into our bodies, you know, uh, which we talked a lot about when we worked on family dinner, another project of mine, but how, when I go into my mom's house, like I, I do this like thing because she has this piece of furniture, like kind of built in. That's like, just, I always knock my hip bone into it. So as soon as I walk into her house, I do this with my body because the space has told me this is how I'm not going to shear my hip bone against um, or, you know, my, my, um, my, my, my cousin, he's not my cousin. He's my, he's my stepbrother, but he's really super tall, like your son. So he, their house is also old. So everything is a little bit shorter. And he, as soon as he enters in the house, he, he compresses himself mm -hmm. and he stays like this in the house. So the, the house has sort of imprinted itself in his body. And then he walks outside and then he like grows to a full height, um, <laughs> Yeah, sorry, that's a bit tangential all over the place. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. And just to circle back to kind of that lost gestures nugget that started this for us, if we think about the doorknob and the handshake, and I know other folks have written about that, I'm thinking of Skin of the City and other texts that think about that, um, then what what of those, like, what of the automatic door where we step and where there's where the handshake is actually a footstep that's that sees you and, and where you don't have to, you don't have any obligation to the people in front of you or behind you to hold the door because the system is designed to ensure that it stays open. What does that do to the, to your relationship, both with the space, that threshold, mm -hmm. that piece around threshold, and also to the, to the other bodies that might be moving through it? Well, and there's a violence in that as well, because nothing like, you know what, the one thing of the pandemic, people using their foot to open automatic openers, uh, know, kicking, kicking up. them. Yeah. yeah. And I, it was just like, man, don't kick the building. Like, <laughs> and then just sort of the, the, you know, the privilege of, yeah, you can lift up your leg and do that. But what about the person who actually has to use it? But yeah. 
I think that's, <laughs> those are the questions we hope that people start asking. <laughs> yes, like, um, it's probably, where are we at, 6.30 almost? Yeah. Um, maybe this is a nice moment for us to invite all of you into the conversation, or any of you. Um, we have like a couple prompts. We're curious what you have to say about very particular things. But if anyone has, <laughs> but maybe we start with like burning questions, comments, um, and then we'll maybe ask you something more pointed after. There's this for you to come up to. So if there's anything anybody would like to share with us, comment, question, reflection, very happy to hear it. Or we can prompt you. Would you like a prompt? Okay. What did we say, Elena? Well, I think we were curious about if anybody has a like, oh yeah, moment in their minds around um, either, either a, a gesture that you remember needing or doing or using that has fallen out of practice for you. Super curious about that. Oh, oh yeah. Well, I'm going to say, so that's part one. Yeah. Part two is if there's um, space, uh, indoor, outdoor, public, private, or otherwise, that you notice um, choreographing you. So like thinking of your not cousin brother who <laughs> shrinks, right? Um, just curious. Just curious. Kate. And there's a really annoying thing like about the revolving doors because they've kind of eliminated them now because of heat loss from a building, blah, blah, blah. But mm. now they've in introduced them and they're on this constant spin. And it's like, you know, it's like you're walking like a Canada goose. Like yeah. you're like, you're <laughs> like, <clears throat> it's not at a gate. It's really annoying. You know. And that's interesting that it's not at a gate, but it's meant for people to walk through yeah. sort of that disconnect, right? And I think there there are I'm just trying to think of another another example with like something like that where I'm like, if this is meant to hold bodies, why doesn't it think about bodies? You know, you're always in this sort of confusion. I mean, I always found rotating doors unbelievably stressful because yeah. I'm I was very tiny for I mean, I'm not exactly, you know you know, a titan at this moment, but, but I was very, like, I grew very incrementally. I didn't have a lot of growing pains. I was like, like very tiny a lot of the time. So I would get sort of subsumed by the people inside the rotating door because I'd be like at knee height or something. And I found mm -hmm. I had all of these like macabre fantasies of getting like squished and split in half. And, and I never understood why we had those to begin with. Like it was incredibly stressful. And then at the airport here, not that I've been in there in a while, but they have the really slow, ongoing one. When, even though it's slow, it has this like horror film anticipation to it for me that it's moving slowly and you can walk. <laughs> but am I still going to get trapped in there? That it brings like all this, all this sensation to my body. I just haven't like thought about rotating doors since you brought until you said it. And I thought, oh, yeah, that was super stressful. Very stressful. I would avoid mm. them. Kate, just piggybacking on your cursive writing the other I um I taught myself I didn't teach myself my mother who is an expert in all things she's actually a superhero I think but she knits like it's nothing and I've wanted to learn forever and also not wanted to and this year I had good reason to want to learn I wanted to do a special project 
So I got her to teach me and I was totally thinking of it as choreography. I'm like, I have to practice the choreo. Like I just got to keep working on it each day. I'm going to put in my practice on the steps. It's totally what it was. My dad is an architect and I spend most of my childhood in hotel rooms and like testing how much the mattress would bounce, like <laughs> checking where the, like all of the, you had to be as cold or like as standard. And that was my favorite thing as a kid. It's just like, mm -hmm. on the bed, mm -hmm. where the little garbage bin is, how far it's, and my dad was in for over like, just to measure everything, make sure it's not cold. And, and the other thing that is coming to mind, it's mostly memories, but I would go to the escalator every Sunday and just go up and down for two hours. Mm. That was my fun activity as a kid. <laughs> I love it. I still do. It's the best things ever. But I think I just didn't understand how that worked. And growing up in Italy, there weren't that many. Mm. So we would go to the mall. To go up the escalator. To go up the escalator. Oh my God. They would drive me for half an hour and then let me go up. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Um, <laughs> I had to work hard to get there, but it was great. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of time in the hotel room with someone jumping on a bed. <laughs> Come up with something, but yeah. Totally. Yeah, skipping. Yeah, I was just thinking skipping. about Double Dutch. Yeah. Like, well, this summer I had an opportunity to do it again after not probably Double Dutching since I was like 18. Um, and it was something Stephen Hill put together who used to be here, up here. Uh, and doing it with kids and them it's sort of being their first time so like everyone was really lousy at it you know um because it's complicated like how do you go in right like how do you oh no not yet like you know this sort of but watching this this engagement with the ropes that everybody does it mm -hmm. like my kid who's never double dutch in his life is standing at the edge like this right like he's just uh and i thought oh this this action creates this in all bodies because it's like, nope, you're waiting for the, the right invitation, right? To jump over and under at the same time. Mm -hmm. The testing of the beds just made me think of, uh, the Vancouver has its own building code and the bottom rail of a handrail has to be four inches off the ground. And in Burnaby, it's three and a half. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were working, I don't know, my kid was little. Anyway, we'd been joking about it because we were just like, yeah, in Burnaby, their heads are smaller. And my kid was with us on site and he got down and tried to put his head through the, oh, he's like, my head doesn't go through. Just like, <laughs> uh, being the child of an architect. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, that's the nice thing I, I don't, I've been enjoying with, I mean, many things I enjoy about my kid, but just how he's always like hacking the space. Mm -hmm. he's just not at, at waterfront station when you walk in and you there's a big staircase up the left to like go up and over and there's a big staircase but there's also in the center but then there's these sort of tile things that are like smooth a landing and smooth and oh, um yeah. he will book it up the stairs as i'm walking so he can slide down twice and it's filthy it's just like beyond filthy but whatever i just let it happen and then he'll see if he can like do two runs of it before i finish walking to the top and i just always love how he's messing with space and then this makes me also because he does skateboard but also how skaters um ask something different of the city in their mm -hmm. navigation um and how you and how it sort of takes a skater or someone who's skater um, adjacent to understand the markings of the, of the skater on the city, right? If you see sort of black 
half circles up against a wall, you know, that's a spot where they, where they skate. Um, and that they're not looking for the most efficient way through the city, which often we are, um, but they're looking for the most playful way through the city, which I think is always such a lovely, a lovely mm -hmm. lesson. I mean, during the pandemic, when they closed all the skate parks, they put sand on them to actually, which seemed, talking of violence, I'm like, that just ruins people's boards. I don't know why you need to put sand on it, but that's fine. But what was incredible is how quickly they mobilized to create new ramps and poured concrete and made these things all over the city, other places to skate because downtown core was vacated. So we were skating, not me, I don't skate. I just sit there with snacks and water, but um, Max was skating like in, in the, like in the fronts of big like office buildings and stuff because there was actually n nobody there. So it sort of was this sort of moment I thought must've felt kind of sweet for the skate community because all mm -hmm. of a sudden, they had a kind of access to the city that they're always trying to get, but they always have to steal that access. Uh, so that was something. I mean, there's certain places where they let them skid all the time at the art gallery in Coal Harbor, but, um, and then I'm finding myself stopping skaters on the street being like, excuse me, where are you skating right now? And then going like, do I look like a middle-aged lady who's asking him like, I'm gonna like narc him out or something. But, <laughs> but it, I was like, my kid's five and he really likes skating and I need to take him somewhere, you know? Um, and just how they, they're constantly repurposing mm -hmm. the city. I think that's, play. yeah. And that's something we didn't, like one of our big kind of bullets that we didn't get to, which is fine. But around, um, like there's the built city, the design city, and then there's use, right? And the, and the city is somewhere at the nexus of the two. And if we think about like, we talked about traces of patina on buildings. You can think of like desire paths that cut across sidewalk spaces. You can t think about those intentional moments of you called it hacking the city or like using against design. So Carol, when you were going down the escalators and up over and over again, I was trying to figure out how to run up the down, es down yeah. escalator as my sister and I called it. Um, so those moments when you're intentionally using against design and skateboarding is a great example, especially because then the city responds and designs against skateboarding, right? In all sorts of ways. Um, but also parkour, I think is another really interesting practice. So many, so many um, explorations. That are that are working with the design and finding a different invitation inside of that implicit choreography, I think is really exciting. And we've all seen the patch of grass that you know has the perfect path around it, and everyone takes the shortcut. Yeah. And there's a dirt path that is the path. This is the rail line. This is the CPR rail line that comes down from Port Moody all the way over here. It comes all the way down and cuts across the city. It goes into the um, station down here, but it comes all the way. And the, the path of the colonial project is really interesting as well because the, you know, the scar tissue from that is really quite phenomenal. And if you walk through the neighborhood and begin to observe it, you'll see some very funny little residual lots that are about the turning radius of a train and the logic of a train and have nothing to do with the the grid of a city which is what the surveyors are all about right just like cut it up into lots so we can sell it and so that's quite a beautiful i mean it's a it's a desire path but a different at a different scale and a different sort of idea mm -hmm. And then the, that layering of like remnant 
kind of intentions or pathways, right? Like yeah. I know you've done that mnemonic, looking at architecture and mnemonic, as a mnemonic device. Yeah. Um, but thinking about how the city is this layered kind of archive itself of of the different ways of mobilization. And then also, of course, like a super intentional forgetting of of like indigenous ways and uses and landscapes and um, this like civic project of of remembering certain histories and forgetting others. Following graffiti tags, that's always an interesting thing. Like I, sometimes you'll see the same tag and you'll just be like, how did I get there? You know, like, yeah, that, that same like you and then you see him, them or him, her somewhere else. And you're just like, wow, that's, you know, an unexpected place. And you're just like, oh, that's interesting. And I, I mean, this is kind of different, but similar, but it never occurred to me. But when you look at graffiti on a train, it's always, it's, it's totally. like the modular. Map. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Totally the reach. It's at the, at yeah. the reach. Right. And it never goes. Yeah. Never. Yeah. I like, I, I never thought about it, but of course it's just the dynamics of that space and navigating that space in that way, which is interesting. One thing, Annabelle, I know it's getting close to time, but I was wondering, because um, one thing I noticed when I, I moved to Vancouver in 2006, and it was like a very uh, ungraceful transition for me to live in the city. Um, I felt like very alone and that it was very hard to connect with folks. And um, actually, the very first dancer I met was Alana Garricky. She told <laughs> me where to go take class because I looked lost, like a lost puppy, I'm sure. Um and then I sort of had this thing where like everybody would go to the mountain or they'd be on the seawall. And I was like, oh, the city is meant not to be in, but to look out at or out from. And then you brought that up the other day also. Um, and to just sort of link it, or Annabelle brought it up, that it's like always, maybe you could talk just like briefly how it's always been kind of that way, because that came up in our walk, the Carroll Street walk. Yeah, well, I mean, Vancouver is an edge city. It's a, the edge condition is really fascinating, and the city doesn't have a city center, right? There's no city square, and you know, there's a whole host of reasons for that. And one of them is is that Vancouver picks itself up and moves every every like twenty five, thirty years, and the business district has moved five times. The yeah, the the um, the library has moved four times, I think. City halls move five times, right? It just keeps shifting. It's it's like this funny thing. Anyway, um, Water Street. Oh, I didn't put that map in, but there's this beautiful, the original town site of Van, of Granville, which later becomes Vancouver. The this part of the map where it says OCT. The Water Street which you can see at the top there has lot six and three. Those used to be underwater because water, the water actually used to come up to Water Street. So that the, the old um, shoreline was actually ran down the middle of Water Street. And there's a very beautiful original photo of the city that was taken from the water looking in. And it's just a row of cottages looking out. And this, to me, is Vancouver's typology, is we're always looking out. We're always, you know, we don't have Central Park. We have the seawall. 
But if you were to take the seawall and collapse it into the space of a park, it's about the size of um, Central Park in in uh, in New York, right? The physical space of it, which is so fascinating, mm -hmm. right? And we spend our whole time like on it, looking out, Passing looking to the other, right? And and so that is a really that sort of edge condition to me is a really has embedded itself deeply in the city. And that's an interesting edge condition because like you're right that it's at the edge and it's situated towards the beauty, but also the pathway is super directional. Like you're meant to be moving in that direction. So there's an interest. That's an interesting. Well, yeah. Like, Seawall is meant to push you along. Too. Yeah. You're, you so gotta keep going. Yeah. Co constant, like don't rest here. Don't stay here. And then just thinking, um, you know, of the erasure of indigenous people here who've been here for time immemorial and they understand the movements of nature, which then we've, like you said this wonderful thing about Strathcona, how the streets are all smooth, but the path, but the alleyways have all the natural topography. And so in this like sort of covering up, this forgetting um, of who was here, including the non-human bodies, um, the sustenance, uh, the community, how it functioned, which was very much with the water, um, that then you have a population now only turning out to look at the water, but not holding space for the folks mm. um, who made, who understand the movements of those waters and, and like the nourishment of this sort of, you know, we're in the built space, but the natural space is what we keep turning to. And yet we ignore those who understand the lessons of the natural space. And I have to like, just call myself out for not doing an acknowledgement earlier. And my brain just sort of went off. But I think for me, it's nice to think about the beauty we take in um, and who, who remains in relationship to that beauty when we look out and how whether or not we are in like a true relationship with the natural world in that way. And I know that I have to ask myself that question every mm -hmm. time I, it's summer, it's, you know, I'm not a big rain fan. I've been well, here a long time, but in the summer I'm like, we live in paradise, but that's a, <laughs> but who knew that before me? Right. Well, it's interesting because the coyotes kind of capitalized on the one way, the, the directional, oh uh, you know, the one way direction of the seawall, mm -hmm. right? Coyotes the summer, were a genius. Which is really summer. like, they're like, oh, they only go that way. <laughs> yeah. And the coyotes, they took it back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you bites of flesh along the way. And then they did that terrible culling, which is bad. Where the, uh, okay, fine. And I just thought, oh, I live in a really boring city where there's no nightlife and there's no, you know, I just didn't know uh, because it was like a different demographic of people. And we were, you know, in our late twenties, Oh, maybe I wasn't quite late, 30, regardless. I, uh, I was like looking for a kind of engagement with the, and it wasn't there. And then we ended up after he was done his degree, cause you know, commute is a real thing, uh, moving over to the east side. And now I'm here, right? So I said, <laughs> somewhere in the middle now. Um, thanks. So much, Annabelle, for hanging out with us and just blabbing. We really just wanted to blab. This is a research moment for us. It wasn't a presentation for you. It was hoping that we could all research through these ideas, think through these ideas in tangential and excite, allowing our bits of excitement to sort of like propel conversation in so many directions. Thank you, Elena, for being my 
partner in all of this totally for so long. thank you justine and animal thanks for jumping into this kind of oh my god it's been so much fun okay cool you can you can pull me into any of these conversations oh, we're not so. done yet thank you, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on thank this you. blustery dark rainy night yeah. in uh pandemic really oh appreciate an audience making the yes, effort. so cool thank you thanks to the folks who hosted us Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to this special episode documenting a public conversation about urban choreography, hosted in person by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement on November 9th, 2021.